0: July is a very exciting time for me uh, because each year, as will be the case this coming week, my wife and I will celebrate our anniversary this summer. It will be 27 years of wedded bliss for Carolyn. Um, No, I'm kidding. I kid. I kid. Now, uh, in in comedy, in case you're wondering, I took a year off from ministry to explore stand-up comedy as a hobby, and I actually went to comedy class. It was something I always wanted to do. So before we started the church, understand I was immersed in a year of open mic nights and craziness, and uh, what I just did is called a cheap applause line. This is where you throw out something as innocuous as, hey, it's my anniversary, and everybody applauds, and you kind of warm up the audience. And so I've become quite a student of stand-up comics. Uh, One of my favorite stand-up comics is a a Chinese comic named Joe Wong, who once quipped, quote, Marriage frightened me because statistics say that 50% of all marriages end up lasting forever. And I thought that was an interesting twist on the subject. Uh, The Gospel in Real Life this week engages the subject of marriage and divorce. And uh, I can tell you that for Carolyn and I, we've been married for 27 years, and one of the things that has helped the marriage stay together is that we have never used the D word. We, we have never out loud said divorce. We just didn't allow it to be part of our vocabulary. Um, murder, on the other hand, has several times escaped <laughs> the conversation. I kid. Carolyn has never said that out loud. I'm sure she's thought it on several occasions, and who could blame her? But marriage is challenging. One of the things that is common in churches is to talk in, from today's passage about divorce And what I've decided to do is instead of talking about divorce, I was going to talk about what marriage is so that we could better understand why divorce is objectionable to God, right, and and why it is a threat to his glory that two people who he has made one would determine to break that covenant with each other. Divorce rates alone would tell us that the institution of marriage is not doing well in our world. Additionally, four out of five kids are born to uh, mothers who are not married, which in one way, uh, four out of ten kids, I'm sorry, in the U.S. are born to moms alone. And this development is undoubtedly both a cause and a result of changes in our society's understanding and definitions and attitudes towards marriage. Before we can understand exactly what divorce is, we need to know what marriage is. And in many ways, marriage has been too coupled, if you'll pardon the pun, to sex. Uh, it is the case that Jesus defined marriage as a spiritual union between a man and a woman, a union that is symbolically represented in the sexual act of a man and the woman being made one flesh. However, sex is only one aspect of marriage. And as anybody who's been married a long time will tell you, it becomes less and less of an aspect of marriage just because you get older and you get less interested in it. And that's just the way of the world. We all grow old and die and our bodies start to break down and you just get interested in a lot more things, things that are actually a lot deeper and richer and 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 the nature of love in a marriage becomes about servants, uh, service to each other instead of just romance. And so before we dive, though, into Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce, the disciples have a follow-up question in verses 10 through 12 of Matthew 19 that I think is instructive for us about how we are to live even if we don't have a heterosexual orientation. And, And I want to begin today by saying what should be obvious about Jesus in general, which is that He's empathetic to us where we live and where we are. And in this particular case, Jesus makes it known that he understands every orientation. There's no desire, there's no inner struggle that you might have that Jesus is not only familiar with, but completely plan that for your life. It's, It's part of what it means to live in a broken world. Jesus says this in verses 10 through 12 of Matthew 19. The Disciples said to him, because he was telling them how marriage is, they said, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. And there have been a lot of married people who wished they'd heeded that wisdom on the front side. But, you know, once you're in a marriage, you're in it for life and you're committed. Jesus replies, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. The one who can accept this should accept it. Jesus is talking about eunuchs, and if you aren't familiar with the concept of a eunuch, this would be somebody who has determined and has, maybe by their own volition, or biologically, physiologically, they have a Uh, A non-desire for sex. Uh, They don't have what's called a traditional male-female attraction. It's just not part of their life. Some actually chose to live lives this way. Uh, The point Jesus is making, according to Dr. Berger Pearson, who is a professor of religious studies at UC Santa Barbara, he says, Jesus is making the point about the eunuch in that it's possible for a man to live on earth as he would in God's kingdom where there is neither marriage nor procreation. Jesus is challenging people who are able to receive it to live a life of celibacy for the sake of the kingdom and thus to live now as though the future kingdom had already come. Some folks, obviously, are in situations that make it difficult for them because they have to combat a desire to do something that God's word has said that they're not allowed to do. I contend that Jesus' is teaching about eunuchs debunks a cultural narrative that has, come a part, that has become a part of our, our generation, which is that without sex, people just can't be their authentic selves. I have a friend in Florida who is a modern eunuch. He's a 60-year-old man. He's never been married. He's never been in love. He has no sexual drive at all. He's been to counseling. That hasn't uprooted anything. He's gone out on dates and tried to jumpstart it. That hasn't done anything for him either. And so I'm meant to ask, if he can't be his authentic self without a sexual identity, what's he to do? And I would beg to differ. I don't think you need a sexual identity or sexual activity to know fullness in life, to know meaning in life, to know purpose in this life. You say you you need sex in order to be complete. What about a person whose spouse is paralyzed in an accident and they're never able to have sex for the rest of their life? They have no sexual activity in their life. Can they know fullness? I would say yes. I have a friend who's gay, and he's a Christian, and he's committed himself to a life of celibacy because he believes Scripture has said that outside of the bounds of a marriage between a man and a woman, No sexual activity is permitted, and and Scripture does say that. Can he know happiness? Certainly. It is a cultural lie, friend, that you can't know fullness apart from sexual identity. You can. You can know fullness in Christ and Christ alone. I'll have more to say about this in the future, but I would say a book you could read if you have questions about this is a book called The End of Sexual Identity, Why Sex is Too Important to Define Who We Are. It's by Janelle williams Paris, who's a professor of anthropology at Messiah College. In it, she says the following, quote, Sex is a big deal, and it deserves to be released from its darkened corner. But on the other hand, sex is not a big deal or at least not in the ways we've been led to believe. On a personal level, we're told that our inner sexual feelings are the measure of our true selves, that by knowing, exploring, and expressing our sexual desire, we are becoming our real selves. Efforts to discipline or redirect sexual feelings for the sake of a greater cause may be seen as foolish or even dehumanizing. When such a big deal is made of it, sex becomes an idol, offering identity and purpose to individuals. Sex is not such a big deal, and it deserves to be dethroned. Later this summer, when we talk about the gospel and real life as it relates to identity, we'll talk about politics and personhood and, and a culture that we live in that is all about identity and finding it in something other than who we are as God's daughters and sons. But Scripture defines marriage a certain way, and so here at PRISM, we speak of Christian marriage, not at all addressing the politics of a civil definition of marriage. As we'll get to in a minute, there's a difference between a civil contract and a spiritual covenant. But because I'm committed to ministering scripturally, I could never preside over anything other than a definitively covenant Christian marriage ceremony. And in our day, I would think it would be important for us to understand the why of biblical marriage so that we wouldn't come off to people who would disagree with us about the nature of marriage as arrogant or foolish. Uh, You just want to say, this is what I believe Jesus taught, and I have to defer to his wisdom on the subject. And so we begin by simply saying from Matthew 19 that marriage is a purposeful institution. That's the first of two thoughts I have for you from our scripture today. In verse 3 of Matthew 19, it says, Some Pharisees came to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? That's a group of guys looking for a serious loophole. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Christian marriage is about more than a mutual commitment to love each other. It's about more than two people parenting through life till death parts them. It's, it's more then the partnership of, you know, personal fulfillment. You know, it is in part some of that, and that can be a byproduct of marriage, but all of those parts are subcomponents of the sum, the real meaning of marriage, which is to give us a physical picture of the mysterious union between God and his creation, between Christ and his church. This union is a real spiritual joining together of two distinct people, a man and a woman. They're complementary, they're different, and for good reason, because the glory of God is seen when two incomplete creations of his, made in his image, are joined together. Man and woman are distinct from one another, and they are both equally powerful and meaningful and and loved by God, but they are not the complete picture of who God is. Part of His glory is in woman, part of His glory is in man. And when they come together, you see a beautiful picture of what the byproduct of creation could be. The Bible speaks of a marriage between a man and a woman being something that depicts the union of Jesus as a groom. And the church as his bride. And the reason is because he is divine and we are human. There is a clear distinction between those two participants in this divine marriage. Ephesians 5 31 through 33 says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And Paul comments on what Jesus said, which actually comes from Genesis 2. This is a profound mystery but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Ephesians says that we as men are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. There's this beautiful, mysterious picture that God is saying at heart, at heart, what marriage is about is that we would see him. Andres, Kostenberger is a professor of New Testament at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he says that the Bible makes clear that at the root, marriage and family aren't human conventions or based merely on a temporary consensus or a time-honored tradition, but Scripture teaches marriage is a divine and not a human institution. He distinguishes between the contract and the covenant. He says this, in essence, a covenant is a contract between two parties that is established before God as a witness, a fact, whose permanence is ultimately safeguarded by none other than God himself. In this sense, marriage is a covenant. It is entered into by the husband and the wife before God as a witness because it is ultimately God who has joined the marriage partners together. The husband and the wife vow to each other, abiding loyalty and fidelity, till death do us part. Rightly understood, therefore, a marriage entered into before God involves three persons, a husband, a wife, and God. For this reason, it is not self-interest, human advantage, or unfettered commitment to personal freedom that governs the marriage relationship but the husband and wife's joint commitment to conduct their marriage based on God's design and sovereign plan. God's marriage definition has written within it purposes and symbolism that point to his glory. And if you change that definition, it skews your view of God. Jim Gaffigan is one of my favorite comics. He says that the 4th of July is the quintessential American holiday because it covers the two things that define our culture most ably, and that is overeating and blowing things up. And I, and, and I think that anybody who doesn't live in America would say the same. Uh, we have in the 4th of July celebration that was really fun this past week a purpose and a definition for what we do and when we do it. The fireworks are not only a celebration of victory, but they are supposed to remind us of the rocket's red glare and bombs bursting in air, and it's supposed to be a reminder of the cost associated with the purchasing of a freedom. We also know we celebrate our country's independence on the day we declared independence, July 4th, 1776, Now, let's suppose a really nice group of people, friends of ours, who love our country, propose that because September 11th is the defining patriotic moment of our generation, we should move Independence Day to 9-11. Additionally, because the World Trade Center explosions were so traumatic, the new patriotic day would cease with any fireworks at all. And the question would be, why would that be problematic? For some, it might not be. For others, it would be because it changes the definition and purpose of Independence Day. No matter what you call that new holiday on 9-11, it would have lost its meaning and not be what the day was originally intended to symbolize, which is the Declaration of Independence, our freedom from the oppressive British regime. No offense to my British friends here. Our Declaration of Independence states that we all have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but our civil right to happiness doesn't allow Christians to change the definition of marriage to make it about human happiness. And our government may define the nature of marriage as two persons bonded together to find other freedoms, but that's not biblical marriage. Christians are bound by God's purpose and definition of marriage. And that includes those to whom God has promised to spiritually wed into one. God's glory is what drives us. It's what makes you and I say, I'm going to continue to fight to love this person who is, at times, unbelievably unlovable. Just ask my beautiful wife. That's the impetus, the glory of God for us to say what God has joined together Let no one separate. You see, marriage has a divine purpose, and it is seeing God. My second thought from our passage today is this. Marriage was a pre-fall initiative, and this is going to get a little theological and potentially uh, heady, so stick with me if you can. When we talk about a pre-fall initiative, we're, we're speaking of something that God instituted before sin entered the world and mankind was driven from the Garden of Eden, before sin came into the world and started playing havoc with our desires and our feelings and our world and our chemistry, disease, death, none of that was in the world before sin entered the world. What most of us would probably be do well to know is that the institution of marriage existed before sin entered the world, which is why Jesus would answer these questions this way. They said, they, in verse 7 of Matthew 19, Why then, they ask, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, before some of you who have been married more than once start to really freak out, I will come back to that last verse and we'll talk about it some, because you're like, oh, my Lord, what does that mean for me? There, There is an explanation that I think you'll enjoy, um, potentially. Uh, but what we see in Jesus' words is that From the beginning, God had joined man and woman, and it was to depict this beautiful covenant he'd made with his creation. In Isaiah 54, verse 5, the prophet wrote, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. Twice today already, once from the Apostle Paul and once from the mouth of our Savior in the Gospel of Matthew, we have heard Genesis 2 quoted, and it too plays a significant role in framing our understanding of what the purpose of marriage is, beyond just two people living together and making kids. What is the purpose? In Genesis 2, 22 through 25, it says, Then the Lord made a woman from the rib he had taken from out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. They existed in a world where they partnered together, equals before God, equal in value. And they loved each other. But there was in the creation sequence Somebody created, if you will, in the image of another. Man was created first, and then woman was created from his rib. And this was to, to paint a picture of the creator creating us and being in union and communing with us. And so it, it's not insignificant that they were created different, that the, that the same substance was used, but there is actually a differentiation between the two. The Apostle Paul called it a mystery that in the creation of man and woman, God was demonstrating how we were created by him and how men and women are both made in his image marriage marriages about the Lord's covenant with his people. So much so that when divorce happens, the visual representation of God's union with his people is broken. The community's confidence, particularly the children of this divorce, their confidence gets shaken such that they wonder in their deepest parts of their soul, is the love of God really one that would endure? Is the love of God something that will last forever? Divorce is the byproduct of people who can't reconcile. And this very thing is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ, calling us to reconcile. All of these things work against what God is saying is that marriage is not primarily about your fulfillment or your happiness or your not being lonely forever. It's primarily about us showing his love and his covenant promise to each other. To not reconcile would present the opposite of the gospel. Now let me flip back to verse 19 to clarify a couple of things. Uh, Jesus says, I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Uh, To be clear, Jesus is not saying that if you get divorced, you can never get remarried. Or that if you get remarried, you are always an adulterer. What he is saying is that if you do so without biblical justification and the person whom you divorced is still single, in other words, they're in their heart and mind still married to you, then you are committing adultery if you go and marry somebody else. Now, it gets a little dicey when you start thinking about what happens if the person I unbiblically divorced went off and got married again. But this is why you have Christian community around. It's to hack through these things, to help you see Where did I err in the first one, and how can I revamp the way I think and feel for this next marriage if I'm going to have one? Jesus is communicating to us that we can't just willy-nilly get rid of somebody, that there has to be a, a biblically justifiable reason for us saying this marriage can't go on any longer. In our world, we speak of the three A's as the justifications for divorce, we call them Adultery, abuse, and abandonment. Uh, adultery and abuse are self-evident and easy for us to, like, come alongside of somebody and improve. You know, your wife has been beating you up, and this is not healthy for you. And we joke, but, I mean, it happens all the time. Abusive spouses, and sometimes, where I've seen it, and sometimes in the church, it gets hidden and tucked away, and the church is supposed to expose that kind of abuse and protect women and men, if there's one who actually did get hit around. But there's also a a broader issue of adultery, which obviously in our culture runs rampant. And and at some point, it's fair to say that that kind of breaking of trust just completely disables a marriage from continuing in many cases. Sometimes people can reconcile, and it's a beautiful thing, but Jesus has given an out for that. This third one, though, the abandonment clause, if you will, is one where you need community involved in helping you discern because way too frequently in my generation, people have used this little loophole to get out of marriages that they weren't happy in. Now, it's Genesis is is 1 Corinthians 7, where the Apostle Paul says to believers that if you've become a Christian and you are married to an unbelieving spouse, um, you are not allowed to leave them but if they abandon you, then you're free to get married again. In the first century, you know, people became Christians, and they were the first generation of people who were Christ followers, and that meant that oftentimes they were married to somebody, and if their spouse didn't become a Christian, their spouse was like, yo, I didn't sign up to be with the Jesus freak, and they're out the door. And and so in that particular case, there's this issue of abandonment. And and so, I, I mean, again, marriage from a Christian standpoint, is always done in community. I mean, it is between you and your spouse, but it's always done in front of people. And in many ways, your friends and your family, your witnesses are there to give support during the tough times, but also to remind you of the vows that you made to God. But in our generation, what's happened is this marriage has become this personal thing that's just for me and that's been redefined to be something that has virtually nothing to do with the image of God and the glory of God. In his book on marriage, the, uh, Tim Keller, The Meaning of Marriage is the book. He and his wife Kathy have written very eloquently about the substance of marriage. And if your marriage is on the rocks or you're about to get married or you're thinking about maybe getting married... <laughs> i got to tell you, this is a book that you probably need to read together, you and your someone. He says this, quote, In short, the Enlightenment privatized marriage, taking it out of the public sphere and redefined its purpose as individual gratification, not any broader good such as reflecting God's nature, producing character, or raising children. Slowly but surely, this newer understanding of the meaning of marriage has displaced the older ones in Western culture. See, you can redefine marriage in some way if that makes you feel comfortable, but from a biblical standpoint, what you are left with is scripture that gives us the purpose of marriage, and when you live inside that purpose, it's it's what enables you to endure those seasons when somebody is not very lovable? Where does the gospel bump up against real life in marriage? And that is that as you are growing in your relationship with Jesus, as he and you, unified by the power of the Spirit, as you are growing in your sense of humility that you don't deserve forgiveness, you didn't deserve grace, you don't deserve him, He is more than gracious and more than forgiving. As that becomes more real to you, we become greater worshipers of God. We become people who serve and love God more. We become people who think, I don't deserve anything, but I am really grateful for for what I do have. This is the nature of a maturing Christian faith. Well, that can't help but shape your marriage in a way to say, you know i could get demanding with my spouse about what i need and what they're not doing i can even whip out bible verses and say you're supposed to be this and that according to scripture but ultimately deep down inside the purpose of marriage is about you demonstrating god's love for your spouse for better or for worse or as carolyn had to say at our wedding for poorer or for poorer i mean it was uh the, I mean, this is the nature of marriage. It's about you showing Christ's covenant love to your spouse. In three weeks, I officiate the wedding of Cody and Carissa. Cody is the guy who's going to start coordinating our middle school ministry here at PRISM, and that's going to get fired up now in the fall. Uh, when I preside over a wedding ceremony, there is this moment in the service when the Lord joins the two standing in front of me and the, the witnesses. And it's a solemn duty, and, and it's, it's a humbling aspect of the service that I struggle to grasp, and that is because when I do the pronouncement, I say, I now pronounce you husband and wife in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, what God has joined together. Let no man separate and I say it with that kind of dramatic affectation because, hey, that's what people pay for when they want a wedding per service. So, I don't really do that. But uh, genuinely, I'll, I'll I'll say that I'll pronounce them husband and wife. And what'll go on is the reason it's mind blowing to me is because what has happened is, is, in the spiritual realm that I can't see, we now know from Scripture that God has taken these two people, man and woman, and spiritually joined them as one. Now, what that means in his sight, that's part of the mystery. But he has clearly said in his sight they are one and that what He's joined together, we can't separate. And what blows me away is it's just, I'm just Holly's dad. And so, you know, I'm just like a regular guy. And so that I get to be there and do the pronouncement thing, what I have to remind myself is I'm not doing anything. I'm effectively saying, and now, just in case you didn't know, in the spiritual realm, God has joined these two together, so I pronounce what God has done here. And you think, wow, that's mind-blowing. It's, it's, especially if you know yourself. You're just like, oh, my goodness, this is an amazing thing. What a privilege to get to participate in that. But if I didn't have scriptural assurance that this type of union was taking place in the spiritual realm, pronouncement wouldn't mean a thing to me. It would be like, okay, and now I announce that the two of you have decided to like each other a lot and stay together as long as you get along. And I mean, good Lord, I don't know what I would be doing. But when we pronounce, we're saying you have been made, you've been joined as one and separating is something that's going to actually it's going to prevent people from seeing the gospel the way Jesus wants them to see the gospel in your life. Our endurance in marriage brings glory and honor to the creator who unites us. Let us pray. Today we're thankful, Father, that your word speaks to our lives and we can have confidence that the gospel, your love for us, the mercy you've extended to us, the, the, the undeserved and unearned favor that you've given to us in relationship with you, that you have called some to enter into a relationship with another, and spend their life demonstrating this this love and this gospel through undeserved service. And that's not easy. And we can't do it without your power. And Father, your power is in the spiritual union that you've given between a husband and a wife. So I pray that your spirit's involvement in marriage would draw people to intimacy with you a renewed clarity about what you've done for them. And then, Father, a greater grace to extend that undeserved love, unconditional love to the one to whom they have been wed. We pray this in Jesus' name.